I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about The Favorite, the 2018 film directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, written by Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Aran. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayetos. Hi. So The Favorite, I think, is one of our favorite movies. Uh-huh. I think this is one of the movies where the Venn diagram of the four of us overlaps <laughs> and it includes like Eternal Sunshine and The Favorite and End of List, potentially The Matrix or you know, <laughs> Jurassic Park or whatever. So we have a lot of things that we want to talk about before we jump in. As usual, our Spotify question for people listening on the Spotify app is who's your favorite queen in a movie? Or TV? Do we have TV queens? Or TV, sure. Queens in and any kind of audiovisual media, <laughs> let, let us know. <laughs> uh, also, quick Patreon update. Our March patron exclusive episode is Catch Me If You Can. We had a battle of the Tom Hanks films and Catch Me If You Can one. So keep an eye out on the Patreon for our March exclusive episode. So the favorite. I think I watched this after the Oscars. And I think hmm. it had like won awards and Olivia Coleman. I think going into it, you know, I, I'd seen The Lobster and I think I liked that movie. Like overall, my impression <laughs> coming out was I think I enjoyed that movie. Yeah. But I was a little tentative to see this, not knowing exactly what the deal was, but it won all the Oscars. Then I heard it was really great. And I remember watching it and being kind of into it, but kind of off-putting some of the style things, which we'll talk about, the cinematography, the wide-angle lenses things, weren't working for me. But the moment that just completely won me over, that I think we already have talked about, mm-hmm. and maybe mm-hmm. our, yeah, is the shot of Olivia Coleman at the party as yep. it just moves in, and her face does these impossible things where it moves so little and tells so much. There's just so much emotion and character like conveyed, and it's just the best shot of all time. I don't know. It's up there. Which I was reading about that shot, and Yorgos Lanthimos told Olivia Coleman that it was just... He's basically like, you're enjoying yourself, then you realize you're not, and you want to go back to your rooms. And we're going to intercut it with the dancing. And so he didn't tell her he was planning on using it as a single shot. Mm. I read a few different interviews with the three key actresses here. And they were all like, yeah, he doesn't really direct you at all. (laughs) And which is incredible (laughs) when you watch this movie. But yeah, they only did it a couple of times. And Olivia Coleman had no idea that they were just staying on her face as she was going, working her way through all of those emotions. It's so good. Like, what a choice. That is a deserved Oscar win when you, yes. in your like B-roll <laughs> yeah. shot, you're giving that performance. <laughs> right? right? <laughs> like I want to make a video that does like a, like I want computer AI analysis of when are her eyes moving this way or that way? And when does her like smile slightly fit? Like I want to know like down to the minutia, everything is happening because it's. So we it's can just, replace her with a computer. So <laughs> no. So we can fully appreciate how, how a great actor conveys things scientifically yes that was the moment that the movie won me over and then it went on to be this great power dynamics people fighting over the love of like it's it's a play it's just like it's just pure classic simple drama Mm. and it's so much fun i love those kinds of movies so it very quickly won me over after that i love political dramas and Mm -hmm. any kind of political power struggles that's why early seasons of house of cards were so satisfying because Mm -hmm. it's just it's just fun to watch juicy power struggles and this is the (laughs) juiciest because the power struggles over 
a queen who essentially is is the, the kind of this child you know if you can meet her needs in a certain way you can be in her favor and essentially be the political power of the government and and so what a fun intimate way to do a political power story there's a reason why like sex scandals have been at the heart of politics and like our sort of political um landscape for so long and it's because we understand that although in an ideal world our politicians are strictly weighing only the best <laughs> political options in a detached sort of way <laughs> that they're just human beings with their own like foibles and impulses we have always understood like our governments are made up of very flawed humans and we would love to and when we find out that something is going on at the top that on paper has nothing to do with politics but is dramatically affecting the politics of a country and the people in the country there's just nothing more fascinating where it's like wait why are we in this war it's because this person is sleeping with this person <laughs> When we find that out, it, it is just the peeling back of that illusion that I think we'd love to construct around politics in sometimes a way that's really satisfying or like you're just saying, it's just like juicy gossip. You know, we always talk about movies being sort of personal and primal and easy to connect to. And there's like an intimacy there. And I think that's what happens a lot in in the sort of political thrillers, like a lot of the ones from the 90s, the sort of the Grishams and the Clancy's. Mm -hmm. It's just like, who are these this group of people and why are they about to attack a place and wh who's this guy and like what there's a plan there's a big plan right and the plan's not going according to plan i don't know what the plan was you know it's just <laughs> like so much and whether it's house of cards or whether it's the favorite or something like that when you do peel all that away and the sort of political stuff is in the background and the foreground is just these very personal relationships and stuff whether it's something sort of insane like this movie that's like purposefully just decadent and 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 larger than life or whether it's something that is a little quieter but still you're just always with the characters and that's who you care about then when the sort of politics are tied to the characters and the things that you already care about then you're like oh now i care if you go to war or whatever but right. like if it's just like this country over here is going to fight this country I'm like okay that doesn't mean anything to me yet yeah, the West Wing is kind of the dream of what our politicians are, and the favorite yeah. is more the reality. <laughs> I, I, I fear is kind of what it is. Or even, I mean, I feel like when House of Cards came out, it was like that comparison of like West Wing, happy, idealistic House of Cards, <laughs> reality. Very sorted, yeah. 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 I've mentioned recently that I finally watched The Crown, and while watching The Crown, you know, it, it makes perfectly clear just the, the storytelling reasons why this setting is so just lends itself to story because it's it's all those things that we're we're talking about of like power and the repercussions like right that like the stakes of everything mm -hmm. are so high but also in this kind of like english court world there's also all of these social constraints and mm -hmm. an air of like we have to speak pleasantly and like mm -hmm. all the fights are done via subtext with smiles on their faces and it just makes it that much more fun to watch these people spar when they can't hit each other directly mm -hmm. uh, until they do sometimes until they do <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well and that's the difference between something like the favorite and downton abbey like downton abbey is this great sort of 
delicious study in subtext, you know, where someone comes to dinner not wearing their correct jacket and then Maggie Smith gives them a side eye and you're like, oh, he's in trouble or whatever. And it's still fun. It's still so fun to watch that. I think the reason this movie is so refreshing is you expect a lot of that kind of stuff from costume dramas. And the favorite is like, oh, no, we're full on going into like sex and poisoning and like people just being insane to each other and pushing each other over and that kind of thing. And I think the um, uh, I was thinking like the opening scene with Emma Stone on the boat and the guy starts just like masturbating carriage. Uh, uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Very different vehicle. Road boat. (laughs) Horse drawn boat. Take that over. No, leave it in. That's great. And the guy starts masturbating. Uh, And I was like, this scene doesn't necessarily have anything to do with like the plot or whatever. I mean, it's doing kind of a thematic thing, obviously, is the sort of like guy can do whatever he wants with to, to this woman across from him. But it's also just setting the tone for this mm-hmm. movie. It's it's like, this is not going to be Downton Abbey. This is going to be <laughs> yeah. the guy who did the lobster and killing of a sacred deer. Like, this is that kind of movie. Buckle up, because that's what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate the Yorgos Lanthimos lens on this time period and this setting and this place, because there is such an absurdity to the culture of the English court at this time and all the men in their like caked on makeup and wigs Mm -hmm. and the way people address each other. And there's something about the way he has like this wicked, weird sense of humor about it all is totally my taste. And so I this is my kind of costume drama. (laughs) I want (laughs) to I want to see them actually say lines like, I don't want to. I like it when she puts her tongue inside me out right. of nowhere. Yeah. It's, it's so just like, good. That yeah. is, it's just so great because it's like, after all this subtext and all this careful dancing around things, people just say something incredibly bluntly and shockingly. And it's just so satisfying. You know, with Yorgos Lanthimos, there's other films of his that I appreciated. You know, I, I, I kind of appreciated The Lobster. I really can't say I enjoyed Killing of a Sacred Deer, but I just love this movie through and through and i think it is the marriage of his sensibilities with this time period that works so well for me yeah i was thinking about expounding a little bit on the like explicitness of the Mm -hmm. world and the dialogue i was thinking a lot about that and about how gross like medieval times were and i know that this isn't exactly medieval but it's early 1700s so you know we're we're out of like medieval times but it's like there was and i'm not you know, professing to be an expert in the accuracy of this dialogue. I assume it's not that accurate, but that there was a dirtiness and like a casualness to, you know, sort of like sex and bodily functions. And like when you're people are getting whipped all the time and there's like chamber pots everywhere. And like, yeah, it's 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 nasty. (laughs) Yeah. And the movement to portray the time as very buttoned up. I understand because we see that there's a, a really stark contrast between like how we want to present, you know, where we have the wigs and the makeup and like everything is like, you know, immaculately dressed and that veneer of politeness. But I think that highlighting also the disgusting and grotesque parts of the world and having the characters be frank about those, I think that is what draws out the sort of inherent absurdity of some of the other like niceties of the time period, which is what enhances the comedy. When you have people that are this buttoned up, you know, in their corsets and everything and and in their very, very polite tones, just delivering very body, mm-hmm. you know, jokes and language and things like that. I love a scene where 
the captain comes in or whatever, and Emma Stone is like, are you here to seduce me or rape me? He's yeah. like, I'm a gentleman. She's like, ah, so rape then. <laughs> <laughs> it's that exact thing. It's the matter of factness about yeah. the sort of like seediness of what life is that brings out the comedy. Both of those things, both the Yorgos' style and the language, are this sort of cool marriage of these two extremes where mm -hmm. the language is not, if the language was meant to be authentic, then it'd be boring and you wouldn't get those sort of delicious lines like you were talking about, Alex. And if the language was meant to be just modern, then that'd be super distracting. You're just, again, it wouldn't sort of put you in the magic of this otherworldly place. But the just like the movie itself, the language is sort of its own thing. It's like, we're not trying to recreate this time. We're going to give you a very strong sense of this time, but we're going to do it in this very modern stylized way that sort of lets those two things come together. Killing of a Sacred Deer, I think, basically takes place in our like universe. Like The lobster is meant to be this sort of alternate reality kind mm -hmm. of thing. Right. But in both those movies, there's a sense of, I'm watching fairly real people have conversations, but nothing feels real. And that's very much by design, obviously, you know, but it can be a little off-putting and keep you a little arm's length from the material, maybe because it's it sort of, you know, David Lynch does this too, where you're just like, I'm not quite settling into these people as humans, as characters, because, the, because everything is so unreal. And the favorite, everything, it's like this big body costume drama. So then that stuff feels more earned almost. I felt the same way when I saw 300. I was like, I don't know if Frank Miller's writing should be said by human beings. And I don't know <laughs> if this Zach guy should be making movies, but at least it's this crazy Spartan, almost superhero-y kind of thing where nothing is meant to be real as opposed to, right. you know, when the same screenwriter, the same director tries to put quote unquote real people on screen, you're like, this feels so wrong and mm. off-putting and that kind of thing. And I think that's what that's why The Favorite is easily my favorite Yorgos movie is because it sort of feels like the perfect marriage of his style and the content. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely agree. And it's kind of touching on this kind of historical accuracy conversation we were having with hidden figures. Mm -hmm. What does that even mean? And what do we even expect from movies? Talking about the making of this movie, you know, I watched several behind the scenes things and the costume designers and the actors, all of them were talking about kind of Yorgos's approach to everything. And something that one of the costume designers pointed out, there was no... I think a quote from Yorgos is like, historical accuracy was kind of like in the car with us in the back seat, but we weren't really paying attention to it. <laughs> right. That's great. The big picture points are like kind of true and the rest, we just want to tell a story. These three people existed. Very big rough outline. Yeah. Right. That freedom, I think, allowed all these things that we're talking about for them to bend our perception of this time period, which as one of the costume designers was saying, you know, most costume dramas, the whole point is that everybody's wig is perfect and every dress is immaculate and everything is exactly, and we don't see the chamber pots. We don't see all these things that make it feel real. The point is to create an imaginary version of like, wouldn't it be great to live in old England and blah, mm -hmm. blah. Right. <laughs> and Yorgos, you know, they would put people, put the wigs on and that like have them, you know, in between shots, they'd be like fixing the wigs and making sure everything's fine. And he would come and kind of just like, <laughs> poke poke the wig off and like pull some hair out or like kind of smudge the makeup a little bit like his whole thing was like it shouldn't look perfect it should look like there are people doing all these things that allows us to laugh at it because it's it's showing the reality beneath the veneer which i think is just really really cool and i, I appreciate about this and like the costumes again the like the servants are wearing denim 
Like there's all kinds of Oh really? Like, yeah. Like just think that they weren't even like remotely concerned about like this is this is not what it would look like, but this is the gist of it. And now we're gonna make a comment about it to to draw out the kind of absurdity of all of it. Mm. Hello, listener. This episode of Beyond the Screenplay is sponsored by CuriosityStream, a subscription streaming service with thousands of original and exclusive documentaries. I'm here with Alex. Hi, Alex. Hello. Who is going to recommend a title that he recently watched on CuriosityStream. Alex, what did you recently watch? So last night, I watched David Attenborough's Light on Earth on CuriosityStream. Nice. I was so delighted when I went into the app to see that there was an entire David Attenborough collection of documentaries I have not seen narrated by David Attenborough. Because for me, the gold standard of nature docs are the BBC, David Attenborough narrated, amazing series. I've seen them all. I've rewatched them all. I need new David Attenborough content and CuriosityStream has it. So I was very excited. Awesome. Well, if you want to check out all these amazing David Attenborough documentaries, you can sign up for CuriosityStream at curiositystream.com slash screenplay. When you sign up, you also get access to Nebula, which is a streaming service created by a group of educational YouTubers. Lessons from the Screenplay is a part of it. Sage from Just Right, Maggie Mae Fish, a bunch of awesome creators. It's a place where you can watch our content ad-free and where we occasionally make original exclusive content for Nebula that you can't find anywhere else. So sign up for Curiosity stream at curiositystream.com slash screenplay and get access to Nebula for free. Thanks to CuriosityStream for sponsoring this episode. Whatever ideology you need to put Rachel Weisz in all of her like badass outfits after she gets back in the second mm-hmm. half of the movie, I'm just like, this character rocks and these costumes are so cool. There's a very clear sort of uh, switch happening there between Sarah and Abigail where Abigail is the one, you know, covered in dirt at the beginning and everything. And then, but then sort of like strives to be the lady and stuff. And then to have Sarah come back and then now, you know, she's the one who is found covered in dirt and everything. But then she comes back and this like, I reject your fashion. (laughs) I reject your decorum, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, It's just, it's really fun to to see her in the second half of this movie. Yeah, Rachel Weisz is amazing also. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, mean all three of them are amazing. It's insane. And Emma Stone is amazing. And Olivia Coleman is amazing. We have now just, we need to have that out in the open. I know. It's like, as soon as you're like, she's the best person in this movie. You're like, no, they're all the best person in this movie. Yeah. Right. Well, the introduction of Emma Stone's character, Brian, you mentioned earlier about how she's riding in the carriage. Mm-hmm. And like, we see her show up covered in mud. And I love the way that the movie handles it, where... We don't see her get covered in mud right away. And then we cut to her at the door. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because that's not how it is in the screenplay. In the screenplay, it happens all chronologically. Editing. Done afterward. Yeah. Uh It's brilliant. But then we have that. What we get is a payoff to that part of the story that's telling us something about Emma Stone's character. Because when she's explaining what happened to Rachel Weisz, she doesn't, you know, basically say like, oh, I got pushed out of the carriage because everyone is mean to me kind of thing. You can see that she is basically trying to strategically present herself in the best way that she can. And it's such a great character introduction for her. And I love the low angle that she's shot from at that Mm -hmm. in that like opening scene and when Rachel Weisz suggests like oh maybe you know a monster for the children to play with and she like goes and does her monstrous thing it tells you so much about what Abigail is willing to do Mm. 
to get out of her the position that she's in where she's like i'm gonna do something goofy like because what if they're serious and they want me to be a monster like do i need to do this okay let's try it and if not i can play it off as a joke the instincts are there the survival instincts and the strategies are there where she's kind of willing to like yeah make herself absurd also emma stone's facial expressions just starting from the very beginning but throughout <laughs> the whole movie are burned into my brain the way that her face moves in this <laughs> right. movie. It's so good. The the monster moment was one of those moments from the trailer where I was like, I think I'm going to like this movie. Uh-huh. Like, there's just something about <laughs> it that there's like a playfulness to this movie that is clearly, yes. that the trailer clearly shows off. Right. I also love that scene because it's, you know, it's these two opponents meeting and we immediately, you know, they're setting up the, the starting power dynamics and all that stuff like rewatching it it was fun to see like these two people are going to be trying to destroy each other soon and it's fun seeing them in this you know before the game is on kind mm-hmm. of a thing you get to meet the opponents before you then meet queen anne and i think that's just a, it's a nice way to kind of set up all the pieces on the board i think that's a, a nice first place to put them as we're mm-hmm. coming into the story i think what's so brilliant about the character design of the whole triad are y- you really understand there's a lot at stake for all of them you know even for queen anne she has this you know all this tragedy in her life with you know miscarrying 17 times mm-hmm. yeah and really just seems like lonely and just wants kind of approval and love from anybody mm-hmm. <laughs> those are really high stakes for her i mean she's a, she's kind of an emotionally disturbed woman who really needs comfort and support <laughs> and physically disturbed and unsound which we get into really quickly yeah, yeah. she's got these really high stakes for her own well-being and then you've got rachel vice who has these very high political aspirations and very clear ideology about what needs to be done politically and in terms of war and her vision for the country i mean she basically wants to be queen and wants to be almost like a military leader as far as where the country goes and then you've got emma stone where she's determined never to be out in the street again because she was a lady she lost that status her family found a disrepute She's lived, we, we we hear her hint at her life. It sounds horrible. I mean, she's basically been raped and used and the lowest of the low. She's determined to never, ever be there again. So all of them, like, they can't afford to lose <laughs> this mm-hmm. game. And that's, that's great character design because it means that when you have those characters needing things from each other or trying to get one up on each other to lose is catastrophic and so they will do anything to win and that a board that is set and you want to watch play out it's present in every single scene Mm -hmm. i think too which they do a really good job so we meet abigail emma stone's character and They didn't just make her like a servant who has nothing, who is, you know, covered in mud and whatever. They make the other servants mean to her, which is Mm, like, yeah, the mm -hmm. lie. Yeah, right. You don't need to do that. But like, but it's it's good screenwriting because it makes us sympathetic. Right. If we if she were just like living an essentially fine life as a servant where it's like, well, nothing's really that bad for you. Like, you know, being a servant's not that bad, but they kind of dwell in like how menial and the sleeping quarters the sleeping quarters mm-hmm. they throw cold water on her and that like gross <laughs> hunk of soap, soap? i guess yeah. it's so <laughs> it's so disgusting but yeah they they really and then they make the other servants like really hate her and be mean to her and everything it gets us on board with that character in the first half where we're like yes right. get it get out of mm-hmm. there like do whatever you need to do especially because you know we can tell that she's smart 
we can tell that she has, like you were saying, come through hard times and she's like resilient. She hasn't, you know, she doesn't think of herself as being a victim. She sees herself as like, I'm getting out of this. Yeah. And that's a really easy person to root for. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's who you need. I would argue that maybe this movie switches protagonists in the middle when you see Emma Stone is driving the plot in the first half. And I guess she continues driving the plot, but she becomes so unsympathetic as the Mm -hmm. movie goes on that it almost is like a change in protagonist. But in that first half, we're really with her. We're like, yeah. absolutely, girl, get out of there. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a fun back and forth of sort of who, where your loyalties lie. Yeah. And, and the movie, especially the more that you, when Sarah starts saying to Queen Anne, like, that's what love is. I tell you, you look like a badger because sometimes mm-hmm. you look like a badger and that kind of thing. You're like, oh, man, maybe she really does just genuinely love her and care for her. And it's not just I need to be in power. So, you know, so then you're sort of conflicted a little bit about whose side you're on but it's also mm-hmm. just fun to watch them screw each other over it's like i may have been okay with this movie if it was just here's some bad people being terrible to each other enjoy but obviously <laughs> the movie does the work to be like sarah and Anne have been like friends since childhood yeah. and they're obviously in this relationship and then abigail you care about her but then like the abigail thing is interesting watching each of her little steps up into her the first half power dynamic thing like some of them feel like oh yeah i'm rooting for you and some of them feel like that was that was sneaky that was a little tricky <laughs> you know and it and it w- works beautifully because as you see her it's setting her character up to either become the like maniac she becomes in the end or not you know you're sort of always kind of questioning what her intentions are and i think that's fun Mm-hmm. Like all the characters ha- go on like such a, a journey across the movie as far as like the tactics that they're willing to use and the mm-hmm. motivations, but it's all hinted at. It's all there the whole time. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely something that Yorgos talked about. You know, he and Tony McNamara, one of the screenwriters, I guess, spent like seven or eight years working on the script. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of their goals was, yeah, to make sure that these characters, you never felt like one of them was the good guy or the villain. Right. But that it was kind of always changing. It's so well rendered in the script and you know the actors talked about that's one of the things that drew them to this movie is that it's you know there were not just one like contradictory complex three-dimensional character for a woman but three like all of the main characters have this like complexity to them and so it, it really does it just makes the story so much more compelling and i think like you're saying trisha there's for me a very clear switch that happens around the middle of the movie where it was like oh cool it's fun to see like Emma Stone playing this game, but then you, your allegiance, you start to appreciate Sarah more and you start to see that how maybe Abigail's kind of like fatal flaws that maybe she wants too much as she reaching too far. And by the end, you do kind of see maybe like her overreach has mm-hmm. like, you know, has she kind of landed up just where she started, but in a different way. Uh, and so, and I love the line that Sarah says of when she's looking at Abigail at the end is like, you really think you've won. Like, we were playing a very different game. Like, I feel like that's the moment when I'm like, oh, but I love, I think I love you, Sarah. Like, I think (laughs) I'm on your team, ultimately. Because she's not motivated by the same things Abigail is. Like, Abigail is just trying to escape poverty, trying to reestablish a status in society. Whereas Sarah has kind of higher ambitions than that, broader ambitions for the country. You know, she has a vision outside of herself. So, and ultimately, you kind of feel like, oh, that is the person you want by the queen's side. Somebody who at least has a vision for something, you know, whose highest ambition isn't just to kind of wine and dine with high society. But yeah, maybe you don't like Sarah's vision, but she has a vision. 
Queen Anne certainly doesn't have any vision. It does seem like there's been a loss at the end of the film where the person with the queen's ear has no opinion really at all about the country. They're just in it for themselves. And that is a step down from the Lady Sarah arrangement. I agree. I think that it's a very smart, but kind of, you know, in the second half of the second act, after Abigail gets married, that's basically all she really needs to be secure. Like at that point, she doesn't actually really need to be the queen's favorite anymore. Right. Because she essentially Mm -hmm. has her status back. Mm -hmm. And you get the feeling that that was like her goal, right? Where it was just like, better my situation until I can make a better situation permanent. Once she gets though, like, to that point, you get the feeling that she starts, yeah, overreaching. She starts to think of herself as potentially being more important and potentially like, maybe I like this. Maybe I I can be the political advisor. And the moment, you know, when she is like, I think he's stealing from you. I think Lord Marlborough is stealing from you. And you start to go like, oh, girl, like, you don't need to do that. You don't right. need to do that. They're not here anymore. Mm-hmm. Like they right. they are back at their country house and whatever. She's been banished from court. You've driven a riff. There's a, a real wedge between Queen Anne and Sarah. You don't need to like try to get them banished from the whole kingdom. And and that's where you start to really go like, mm, this is going to go super badly for you, <laughs> right. which of course it does. The moment that I think it's like chapter eight starts where it's just Abigail in like full makeup and she's just like hanging mm-hmm. off of people and that kind of thing. To me, that's just within 10 seconds. I'm like, oh, okay. Like we we are no longer rooting for you. You are you have gone over off the deep end and like that's that for you in terms of whether we're going to have any allegiance for you at this point. Well, it's the difference between being an opportunist and a strategist, which mm-hmm. Sarah is very much a strategist. She's very calm. She's playing the long game. Mm -hmm. As you point out, Alex, she's very smart. She knows what's going on in the country. She's super suspicious of absolutely everybody, which is why she isn't more welcoming to Abigail when she first shows up. That's ultimately probably a better person to have in charge. You're right about that, Alex. Whereas unfortunately for Abigail, she's put in the position of just being an opportunist where she's trying to create opportunities, but she can't play the really long chess game. Right. Because she doesn't really have control of the board. So she's forced to kind of like basically respond and take advantages or take opportunities when they're presented to her. And that's a very like wily, entertaining character to watch. Like, you know, we don't know how she's going to pull it off. It's a fun character to see succeed because we see how much luck plays into it, right? Where she happens to be standing up in the balcony when the queen and Sarah come in and she happens to find out that they're like, you know, actually lovers. And I love the look of the looks on Emma Stone's face. (laughs) This whole movie are just incredible. But, but again, we see how much luck plays into it. We see how much like she's making moves, but because she isn't already embedded, there's a long standing relationship that she's not a part of. We're seeing like she's going to make a move, but she has no idea how it's going to be received and really no control over how it's going to be received. So she's forced to take risks like when she goes and gets the herbs and puts them on the queen's leg. And it's fun to watch characters take risks and then sometimes have them pay off and then sometimes they don't. It's really entertaining. It's especially fun to watch them take risks while they're both holding guns hunting Uh (laughs) and and revealing things to each other that could result in one of them turning and shooting the other as Rachel Weisz pretends to do. 
Yeah. I do fear accidents and confusion. <laughs> yeah, it's so great. That's one of the things that I want to talk about. So what you're talking about, Trisha, also um, at the end there of like, you know, that she's she's kind of like the Joker in some ways that she's just kind of like, I'm just a dog chasing cars a little bit. That like manicness mm-hmm. of it. Her disadvantage is, you know, there's a, a longstanding relationship that she hasn't been a part of. And we see that used as ammo against her when they go to the bathhouse and now Sarah's like we're gonna play and I'm gonna just get in the tub with her and we're gonna have an inside joke that you're not a part of like it's so much fun to see these things that get named and are clear in the script to see them be used as ammo and like it's interesting you know the very I think the first scene with Sarah and Anne Anne asks Sarah to say hello to one of the rabbits mm-hmm. or something. And we mm. see Sarah's like, no, this is macabre. I'm not here mm. for any of this. And then the very first scene with Abigail, she's like, oh, I love these rabbits. Tell me more. Mm-hmm. So like we see the the pieces of ammunition that they're going to use to play this game. And then as you were just mentioning, Alex, there's this, the gun range thing. It's just such a fun thing to return to and to you know use as a metaphor of where they think they're at power wise and how that's all playing out. It's like, let's have a check in at the gun range. And mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. It's so, it's just so much fun. And so I think that's also just clever writing to have a thing where we can come back to this place and see how the dynamics between them are shifting each time now that some time has passed. And just, you know, obviously that's a great selection to have it be a gun range and <laughs> where they're killing things and just, right. yeah. And, and you can yep. do visual things like have blood spatter the blood. on the face <laughs> right. of the person currently losing. Right. right. I also think it's a good antithesis to Chekhov's gun, which is if you introduce a gun in the first mm-hmm. act, it has to be used in the third act. Because like, I don't care. I don't I need anybody to actually literally be shot. It's just the guns are metaphors. I get what they're doing. You did it, movie. You did all the things. I don't need someone to literally pull out a gun and shoot someone at the end to feel satisfied. Right. What enhances the precarious feeling when you watch it because that's how I feel when I watch this where I'm like Emma Stone's character is walking such a tightrope because again she really has no control so she's really subject to the whims of as I mentioned luck but what feels like luck is Queen Anne Queen Anne is so I guess the word I'm looking for is capricious but like Mm -hmm. we have no idea you know you mentioned that she's basically a child I think that that's the obvious descriptor and i think that that's like kind of true but at the same time there's a really complex character there that is smart enough to not know when she's being manipulated but to sort of always suspect that she is right and so like i think that's a really critical component of Anne's character where her whole life she's never known if anybody really cared about her right, or if every single person in her whole life has been trying to play her, Mm. it would mess you up. Like you get the feeling where if you were, you know, I don't know, I'm sure if you were born super rich or famous or influential in some way, if you were the child of somebody, you know, very powerful, then your whole life you would be going, do people just want things from me? Is that what every single one of my relationships might be at its core? And how alienating that would feel and how lonely that would feel. And it's like we see on Queen Anne's face every time somebody makes a move, you know, there's a real delight in her relationship with Sarah. But and and I think another thing that makes us sympathetic to Sarah is that there does seem to be a genuine care there 
But mm-hmm. like I said, Sarah is also a strategist and she is trying to run a country because <laughs> Queen Anne is not running a country. You get that the looks on Olivia Coleman's face where even when someone is being nice to her and she's happy about it, she's always wondering. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's ugh, she's so good. It's really, really well written character. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Can I talk about my love affair with Olivia Coleman real quick? Because sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. it's... it's <laughs> A long-standing thing. Um, in 2009, my friend uh, introduced me to Peep Show, which is a British show I mentioned a couple times in the podcast before. And it's one of my favorite comedies. And she is in it sort of in the first season or two. She's the sort of Pam from The Office character or Dawn from The Office, depending on which side of the pond you're on. It's sort of like the the cute coworker. You're like, ooh, maybe... maybe David Mitchell's character will get together with her, da da da. And then the more the show goes on, the more they do this very British thing of just being of like making her insane and like almost kind of like a villain sometimes, or just like a just a crazy person. And it's so much more fun than if she was just like the nice character mm-hmm. that he had, like had a relationship with. Partially because Olivia Coleman is just so amazing, and it's so much more fun to see her do like all these things. And then. I mentioned the movie Tyrannosaur, which I love largely because of her performance, which came out in 2011. And then Broadchurch came out right after that. Broadchurch is so good. And she's insanely good in that. And then it was like the night manager and Fleabag. She just sort of kept showing up. It was, and, and it was sort of like it felt to me like one of those things where you feel like something is personal to you because you discovered it in some obscure thing a long time ago, but then it's getting popularity. Like that band that you loved would, you know, when you were a kid and then suddenly people are discovering them now 20 years later or something. And then to have all of this culminate in the favorite and have her win an Oscar was just like so just felt so good to me. And it was like weirdly also Sam Rockwell, Francis McDormand, Gary Oldman. It was yeah. like within a two year period, it was all these people who I'd just been like so fond of for so long were finally getting like the biggest recognition they could get, you know, but especially Olivia Coleman, who I just never expected this sort of like, especially in the States that we would like, they would find her and be able to like <laughs> give her the roles that she deserves. So mm-hmm. I just, I just love her in this movie and I can't wait to see the father, which I'm going to watch as soon as I can. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's like, she, so I was looking at the script a little bit and there's very little of the depth that I think comes across is, is on the page. Like there is enough of that. And kind of like you were saying just a minute ago, Trisha and is always worried about, like how people see her and what they want mm-hmm. from her. And and the first thing she's saying was, how was my speech? Did I have a lisp? No, you've never had a lisp. But well, that's why I was worried because somewhere I thought that like <laughs> I have a lisp. So maybe I was just like it's hilarious. It's a great opening couple of lines for yeah. the character. But so there's just like these little seeds of insecurity. And she has, you know, yeah, that, that beautiful moment when she's with Abigail and she explains what the 17 rabbits represent. I feel like that does a, a lot to be like, oh, okay, we understand a lot more about this character. But yeah, Olivia Coleman is able to just add so many layers to every single moment and every little thing when she's yelling at the poor page guy oh, that yeah. looked at her, but didn't like, <laughs> did you look at me? 
Or yelling at the musicians to stop playing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's it's like it's doing its service level thing of being funny or, you know, portraying how kind of like untethered she's becoming. But there's always this kind of like humanity at the core of it. And I think it'd be really easy to play this character not that way, to not mm-hmm. have that be at the center. And that's just one of the amazing parts of her performance in, in this movie. Like we've mentioned before, she is intelligent in her own way as far as how to get these women to kind of fight over her like she right. enjoys yeah. making them jealous she points out many times am i making you jealous do you like this you know it like she right. knows how to push sarah's buttons with abigail so she's also playing her own game even if it's just a more emotional game uh, as the other women we want to think of her or like we're invited to think of her as being as her insecurities making her almost innocent and especially when we see near the beginning that she doesn't have a lot of political savvy where they're like trying to explain the war to her. <laughs> She's like, well, we, we, we've won the war. Like, no, we haven't. Um, we still have to, we've got them on the run, but we still have to, you know, like we don't have a peace treaty with them. And she's like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you, you didn't know that. Okay. There's that temptation again to dumb her down. But I think that the woundedness is a big part of it. The directness of her relationship with, Sarah is also a huge part of it, as you're mentioning, Alex, where, you know, when Sarah pulls her aside and is like, you're enjoying this. And she's like, yeah, I am. I can tell that you're fighting over me because at the scene at the bathhouse, we're wondering, does she know she's being manipulated? And it's like, oh, she does know she's being manipulated. So she's very present in this whole thing. That's why I think this movie feels like a real triangle where it isn't just a tug of war with Queen Anne in the center having no control. In fact, That's the whole thing. She has all the control. Right. And so what she decides to do, which is kind of the whole thematic point of this movie, in my opinion, which is about sort of, you know, like how arbitrary power is. Right. Yeah. (laughs) She isn't like this inert object in the center that's being yanked back and forth against her will. Right. She has a will of her own and she's wielding it. And even though her impulses are so unpredictable, where she wants to go to the party and then she doesn't want to be at the party again <laughs> uh-huh. two seconds later. Right. They're unpredictable, but that's what makes that character dangerous, interesting, powerful, and at the same time, deeply human, as we talked about. And those reveals keep you on your toes. The sort of like the yep. sort of moments of, oh, she does kind of realize this thing is going on. She's not just sort of as naive as she as she, you know, that makes you go, oh, well, then maybe I don't fully understand what all these characters motivations are or where we are in the story and that kind of thing. And again, it's just sort of like this movie does such a good job of just keeping it fun and keeping you always on your toes every five minutes rather than just this long drawn out sort of same one note for 20 right. minutes or something. Exactly. And of course, you know, at the end in that, in those final shots, Oh yeah. She's, she's kind of horrifying because she's almost become this sadist where she's, you know, she's lost Sarah. She's, you know, she's in total pain. She's like half paralyzed at this point. You know, it's like, what does she have to, to live for anymore? And so she's just kind of, in a way, you have a sense that her new relationship with Abigail is this just sadistic, kind of sad, weird, ugly relationship where she's she has this servant essentially to kind of, you know, massage her her oozing leg. <laughs> and it's oh, it's like a horrifying ending. It's a wonderful like arc for the characters it's it's a beautiful disillusionment arc final image mm-hmm. of uh abigail on her hands and knees her her head's being gripped by, yeah. the, by the queen uh-huh. and it's like oh, this power kind of move uh it's just, just so good yeah it's one of my favorite kinds of endings is like just 
bad people being miserable at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Social network, you know, just like, like, yeah, you don't get to be happy. You don't get your character arc doesn't get completed. Your character, like you're, you don't get, you don't deserve it. So screw you. But I think it's also tragic in this case that it's like, you know, Sarah, like they all lose everything. Everybody loses. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Basically like Sarah loses her country and this relationship and loses this relationship. Like we said, you know, she's, has anyone ever told me the truth about anything? Well, Sarah obviously does. Like Sarah makes that point explicitly. Like I tell you, you look like a badger because I love you. And so, like, that's lost. And then Abigail is, yeah, probably the most deserved in, in that social network category of like, well, you kind of made this happen. So, like, I don't really feel that bad for you right now. Right. But you understand why she made it happen. But, right. You, why I love these characters so much because everything right. they do makes perfect sense. Yeah. It's such good design. Abigail is the easiest sort of target for this. But I think all three characters, in my mind, it's you were all being kind of crappy. So you're all kind of miserable at the end. Do you know what I mean? Like the, this sure. fight for power, like you were saying, Trisha, like the, the arbitrariness of power and that kind of thing is ultimately not worth it. If right. what you have at the end is nothing other than power, basically, you know, so that's why you end up feeling the most sad for Sarah because she sort of becomes like the secret protagonist in the second <laughs> half of the movie. But ultimately, it's just it's that it has that sort of Shakespearean thing or Tarantino or whatever. It's like, yeah, but you were all kind of not really being good people. So you don't get happy endings credits. I love the last couple of beats of complexity in the second half of the second act Mm. for all of the characters. I love the moment when Sarah burns the letters, Mm -hmm. right? Where Mm, she's like, after she has threatened to reveal her sexual relationship with the queen in order to blackmail, you know, her dearest and closest friend to stay in power in the position that she's in. After that moment, which is where, which is her darkest and ugliest moment, right? Where we're like, oh no, Sarah, you have gone too far. Mm, but right. after that, she doesn't do it. She burns the letters. I mean, she ends up telling the queen that she burns the letters. But it's really interesting that the filmmaker shows us she did, in fact, burn the letters. So when they're having that conversation between the door, it would be easy to keep us in the POV of Anne, where it's like, she says she burned the letters. Did she really? Is she lying? Right. right? It would be very easy to keep Sarah in that, like, she herself has been playing, you know, like manipulating the queen the whole time. But again, this movie is always more nuanced where there's always something real you feel like at the core of Sarah and Anne's relationship. And so the fact that she actually does burn the letters, we see her do it is a really great choice at that moment. And then I love the moment where Emma Stone's character, Abigail, gets the letter from Sarah and burns it, but she cries while she's doing that. It's this weird last moment of complexity and humanity yeah. for Abigail's character to remind us that like she has gotten herself in over her head for sure, but she isn't a monster. She was just a person who didn't want to be out on the streets. And then like, yeah, now she's overreached and all of this stuff. This little tiny hint of remorse right there at the end for Abigail's character that I think makes that final scene where she is, you know, back in her subservient all the way, you know, literally on the floor position at the feet mm-hmm. of the queen. That gives it that note of tragedy where it's like, well, you know, at the end, you were all of the power that you gained. This whole movie was just an illusion. Right. Right. Because you can't win 
it's monarchy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. There's no real bettering your position. There's, there's only, yeah. The favor of the monarch. There's only the absurdity of whoever is in power. Yeah. Emma Stone also just before we finish, Emma Stone is amazing. I've said it before. I'm going to keep saying it that I feel like she's our generation's Meryl Streep. Like she's never not been amazing. She has the biggest eyes. Why are they half <laughs> yeah, her face? Her <laughs> eyes are incredible. <laughs> I mean, in this movie, obviously, there's a fisheye lens. And in Birdman, which we just <laughs> talked about, there's also like crazy lenses on her face. But still, mm-hmm. they're, they're so big. Yes. They're like golem-sized eyes in Absolutely. her face. Um, yeah. no, she's incredible. I agree. She describes she really likes acting that is thinking loudly. Like she prefer to not have any lines. And I feel like when I watch her in this movie, especially... Especially, I think thinking loudly is a really great way to describe it, especially in that scene like you were talking about, Trisha, where she's in the library and then she's spying on them and you're just like watching her face react to all these things. And there's just you understand every thought process. And also she was given a lot of acclaim for her accent in this mm. movie. And it was just really interesting to hear. She's like humble and it's like, yeah, I don't know. I'm sure that's all very nice. But then like hearing her talk about it more, it's like, well, yeah, I, I lived in London. I used my accent basically all the time whenever I was talking to anybody to like try to pass and all this stuff. Interesting. I'm in awe of all of them. Right. Emma Stone included. It's a funny meta thing because she is the only one of the three of them who hasn't been in a Yorgos movie before. Because Rachel Weiss and Olivia Coleman were both in The Lobster. And then she's the only one of the three of them who's not actually British. So it actually works really well for her character who is coming into this, mm-hmm. this world that's already familiar with itself. But then she is the sort of stranger coming into it. Uh, and yeah, she nails it. Her comedic timing is dead on. Like Easy A, if you haven't watched it or watched it recently, it's great. It's one of Emma Stone's like first movies. Mm. And she's it's like pretty much a straight comedy. And she's so good in it. She's just like so expressive and hilarious at all times. I think she and Olivia Coleman actually have something in common that I was noticing about Olivia Coleman. I was rewatching some clips from Peep Show and the Mitchell and Webb uh, uh, sketch comedy show and stuff. Whenever either one of them is doing comedy, there is still a, a weight and a seriousness to it. Like you believe that they are real because they're just such good actors. But then whenever they are doing drama, there is a brightness to them too. So it's like they can easily, it's, so, it's like we were saying about Keira Knightley and Pride and Prejudice. It's like they could just so easily walk the line between I need to be very serious and sort of adult and that kind of thing, or I need to be playful. They can do all that in the same movie as the same character character and it feels it all feels coherent and it doesn't feel like suddenly they're someone else you know obviously any actor should be able to do that but some are sort of just known for playing this kind of role like i'm always the, this person or whatever and they they just sort of walk that line so beautifully mm-hmm. I wonder if it's almost like you know like a singer has a, a range that they can like sing within i think i don't know music things super well <laughs> but that sounds right uh, and i feel like yeah they're actors that like you know kind of the lanes that they're good in but it feels like they're these actors are are just great across the entire spectrum they can do it all and and never break the reality which is kind of what you're saying Brian of like like when Olivia Coleman is being hilarious it doesn't feel like she's stepped out of her character to make a joke or something right. it's, it all mm. feels like within the boundaries of the same cohesive character right yeah when we talk about range usually we're talking about like what kind of characters can you play? But there is also this like emotional range that it's sort of like, where can you live on that on that spectrum also? The, the one time I feel like I get to actually see Olivia Coleman in this movie is when she's talking about her rabbits to Emma Stone in that, mm-hmm. in that scene because she's not wearing quite the same makeup and she, Olivia Coleman, is not 
putting on quite as much of an affectation on her face, but that's so clearly on purpose because it is the the moment where we as mm-hmm. the audience get to see her actually being sort of a human now and not mm-hmm. just this cartoon character that we've been with up until now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fun fact, Queen Anne did not have any rabbits. That's yep. that's a thing that was added. They were thought of as pests. So this movie's not realistic? <laughs> <laughs> Shocking. The last thing that I want to make sure we, we talk about a little bit is the cinematography. We, talk, we touched on it early, but to kind of bring it back, there there are these moments like what you're describing, Brian, where we're getting to just see these people being completely vulnerable and open, but they're always shot in these weird ways. And Yorgos hearing that everybody talk about working with them. It's like you, you would go up to the DP and say, what's the most like conventional way? Like, what's, what do you think is the normal good way to shoot this? Cool. Let's (laughs) do the exactly the opposite. Like that was literally a thing you would say. And I feel like sometimes it really works for me. Sometimes I think the framing of it and the use of decently wide lenses really captures things. But I think it can go a little bit too far when it gets into fisheye territory. So I'm curious to hear what your guys' thoughts are on all of that. The thing I noticed, I didn't even remember the fisheye stuff from after having seen the movie in the theater, which is a good sign because it means that it didn't. I probably noticed it when I was watching the movie, but it didn't stick with me as some distracting thing. The thing I noticed this time actually looking for it is almost every time it goes into like full fisheye, it's sort of from a distance, an intimate kind of thing. And I realized it actually kind of gives the movie a security cam feeling. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) It feels like I am like a fly on the wall watching a security camera in a time when there weren't security cameras, obviously. But if we shoot at this lens where we're sort of the camera's like up on like the high wall and it's panning, sort of following the characters going the way a security camera would. And it kind of puts me in this state of I get to watch sort of behind the scenes what's actually going on with these characters. I don't know if I think it's great choice stylistically, whatever, but I realized it was actually doing something functional to me this time through when I watched it. So that was interesting. I think I used to have more of a an aversion to wide angle fisheye kind of shots. I think it, it used to be more my my film school days it was like oh i hate it it looks too much like a almost like a home video camera that's too wide and i want the out of focus background like a cool cinema thing <laughs> and i think i've really come to appreciate when it is used for what feels like an emotional reason and i think in this film i think yeah there are a couple of moments with extreme fisheye where like a carriage is going by and it's just like this it's, or like emma stone walks right next to the yeah, camera like, and insane. it's an impossible camera move that's on a technical yeah. tripod swing yeah so there's definitely shots where it's calling maybe too much attention to itself right. uh, for some viewers but overall there's the absurd shots where like my attention is drawn to the fisheye bubble nature of the image and most of those watching it again actually do work for me because they just are another tool in the toolkit to reveal the absurdity of this time and place. And I think all of the idiosyncrasies that Yorgos Lanthimos brings to his movies, they all work for me here because of the setting, because of the satirical nature of the content. And I also love in a, in a less satirical way and more just kind of emotional, sometimes like sad way or you know, awe-inspiring way, the wide lenses you know giving these tall ceilings making the rooms feel so cavernous and so big and the people feeling so small in them has a real emotional impact of just loneliness you know Mm -hmm. queen anne is in these like giant rooms with tall ceilings all alone and all the figures are always very small and and i think that that's a really important overall feeling for the film 
I very much agree. Um, I think it's doing something, you know, sort of tonally. I think it's also doing something thematic to me. So this movie has a lot of interesting images and ideas about cycles without necessarily having like circular images in it. I think that the fisheye lenses, as you point out, Alex, create this sort of maze-like or sort of trapped claustrophobic feeling where you can see the ceiling. You can see like where the walls come together and the corners and everything, where even though it's a huge room, it still doesn't have an like you know apparent exit most of the time right. kind of thing. Right. That kind of feeling persists at every level. Where when we first meet everybody, they're talking about the war. By the end of the movie, they're still talking about the same war. There's this sense of conversations that are kind of repeating over and over again. The power shift feels like it's back and forth. It's switching constantly over and over again. There's this maze-like feeling to the palace where we're like almost never outside of the palace or off the palace grounds. You know, Queen Anne doesn't know where she is in the palace. There's like this disorientation and maze-like sort of trapped feeling where you're trapped in like a cycle essentially. Or Queen Anne feels like that she's all the characters really feel like they're kind of trapped, like playing this game that none of them really understand how to win or or what the game is, but it just, you know, they're kind of stuck in it. And that's, you know, where I land when I think about the ending, which is I think about the rabbits, <laughs> right? <laughs> which is how this movie ends. And it's like, you have Queen Anne having lost and lost and lost and lost and lost children, right? Children are when we think about, which is true about Queen Anne, when we th- think about like legacy or something that goes on and lives apart from us, that's children, right? But if you keep losing children and you do not have them, in her case, there's no one to like break the cycle. So there's no one to like outlive you and keep going. And so it again, it creates this stuck feeling where you're just trapped in a room with a bunch of rabbits and like no no one, no one and nothing potentially that's going to outlive you instead of approaching time in a linear way. This movie is always like chopping it up and circling back to remind us like this has happened before. This has happened before. Right. And Emma Stone ends up back exactly where she began. And rabbits, too, are a symbol of that. Right. Like rabbits sort of when you think of them in culture, there's already like a cyclical meaning attached to them. Um, And the way that they proliferate right in that final, like those final frames, (laughs) I feel like also reinforces that feeling of this repeating and repeating sort of thing that doesn't ever really end like monarchy. (laughs) (laughs) And power struggles. And power struggles. Right. Yeah. And all of this stuff. And yeah, the absurdity of power and all of this stuff. So I think it is really doing something thematic the way that the the cinematography keeps us stuck in the rooms that we're in and things like that. I also just love just the overall look of the movie that they used almost all natural lighting. And mm-hmm. I just I just find it so beautiful. I, I loved watching it again on my big you know 4K TV. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is so gorgeous. I love this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with all the thematic things that you guys are talking about. And overall, I also love the cinematography in this movie. And I think it does put you in interesting places and makes you look at things in a new way that almost always is enhancing uh, the experience of the movie and getting at the psychology of the characters. I think it's just when it goes to fisheye that it feels like security cam. Right. (laughs) Because you can have really, really wide angles without going all the way to fisheye. And I think like, 
people that don't know cinematography know what a fisheye lens is. And I feel like it reveals the artifice of the movie a little bit. And I think as as you were saying, Alex, I think that's part of the point, right? Is like mm-hmm. you're seeing this in a way that you've only maybe ever seen like weird music videos or yeah, security cam footage, like behind right. the scenes, like you're watching these people in these ridiculous outfits do this thing. And it's revealing how absurd it is because you're looking at it the way you look at our reality. It reminds me of like in the Hobbit, when we saw the Hobbit movie and high frame rate or GoPros on the barrels <laughs> or well, yeah, there's, don't get me started on the GoPros, <laughs> but like, there's something about like film, the way we've, for the most part, experienced the visuals of film language that make it feel like movie and the way that 60 frames per second breaks that for me, the the super fish eye thing breaks it for me a little bit too much also. But otherwise, I think the cinematography is gorgeous and is achieving so, so much as, and it is an example of why it's fun to break the rules and to know, to say, what's the normal way to do that? Cool, that's number one, what we're not gonna do. Now let's go figure it out. This is a great example of of how that approach to telling a story can, when married with the right story, can deliver something truly special. Agree. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to go around and say what lessons we're going to take away from the favorite, Trisha? Do you want to start us off? Sure. So there are also three men in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who are also great. They are also great. And, and I just want to talk about those characters for like a really quick second. Uh, they are very, very supported characters, but you do need them. And their design is really cleverly matched to the three people that they end up sort of like interact with other three main characters. So you have Nicholas Holt's character, Harley, who is actually most, I think, in personality, most like Sarah, where he also is a just very practical sort of strategist. Right. Not really interested in like anything other than getting his way pretty much in the kingdom. Then you have Joe Allen, who plays Masham, who is, you know, paired most often with Emma Stone's character, um, Abigail, but he is more impulsive. He, you know, kind of is sort of well paired with her in the way that like she can take perfect advantage of him pretty much um, in a way that she can't with Harley. And then you have James Smith who plays Godolphin, who is very like we don't know much about him, but he's just holding a duck the whole time. <laughs> and <laughs> I like stroking it. <laughs> it's a really good, it's a really good image almost, or like match sort of in a way for the queen. You get the sense that he's not doing anything really. Like he's just kind of along for the ride um, and is potentially being manipulated by other people. And so it's kind of just this really smart little counterpoint where it's like, and then also there are these three men. They're also caught up in this game and like, you know, being played and also attempting to play their own sort of versions of the game. I love the scene with Masham where he and uh, Emma Stoner in the woods uh-huh. and she's like <laughs> literally beating him up <laughs> and is like, but it's aren't so you good. in love with me? Like, <laughs> she, I mean, all of their interactions are great. It's just good. Like what kind of person is needed as the counterpoint to this other person in this scene. And 
I, I love just how these three men are drawn and, and how they're played. And there's a lot of unselfishness from all three actors where they understand the scene is not about them pretty much at every time. Like, especially James Smith, who's just there with his duck the whole time. Yeah. Like, he knows this scene is not about him, but he's still like, he's still great in it. I don't know. I really, I really like all three of the male supporting characters here. So for sure. It is important to note, yeah, that they are there and play a critical role because it's, it's not just three people in a room, right? It's there, not- are, There's... You have to have a little bit of other like knobs you can turn and and moving parts. Yes. Right. Moving parts. And it's also fun to sort of give them some of the boring political stuff. Yeah. So it's it's, so it's sort of like let them go play army or whatever. Right. Well, we can like (laughs) hang out with the three characters we actually care about so that those characters don't have to do that work. You can kind of sort of like brush it off on those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Nicholas Holt is one of my favorite actors and <laughs> I love him in this movie so much. His delivery of every line in this movie is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot he was in this because he's also in The Great, which is like the sort mm-hmm. of spiritual sequel TV show. That's Tony McNamara, yeah. From Tony McNamara, yeah, who wrote The Favorite. And so it was like watching it I was like, "Oh yeah, you're in this too as also like a crazy political, you know, crazy costume drama political person. I love it when he shoves Emma Stone down into the, like, gully or whatever (laughs) it is. Yeah. It's great. People falling down always makes me laugh. It's one of those things that, like, I can't logically explain why. Like, I can make arguments for, like, certain kinds of humor that's just, like, objective. Like, you make a joke and has a punchline. People falling down always makes me laugh. There's a ton of that in this, so I love it. There you go. Brian, what's your lesson? So obviously we talked a ton about power dynamics because that's what this movie is. But I actually, this time watching it, I made a note every time there's like a power dynamic shift or like a, a tactic done to see what happens next. So I have this list of like 30 moments or something where it's just constant throughout this movie, which is just really fun to actually take note of each little time something happens. You know, something as simple as Abigail coughing. And then saying, sorry, I must have, uh, you know, I must have gotten sick while I was fetching the plant to help your leg, you know, which is like obviously sets the whole thing. into so obvious. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, But it's just fun to watch all those little moments. I think this movie is just like a masterclass in power dynamics of how Mm -hmm. to use them effectively, because it's not just, oh, the dynamics shift back and forth because that's that's fine, but that's not interesting enough to sort of make a movie. They increase in frequency and severity as any sort of plot thing should, you know, ideally in a movie. And then the first half, it's all about like the rise of Abigail. And then midpoint, Abigail gets sort of everything she wants. And then things change. And then now it becomes this tennis match back and forth where, again, now the stakes really start to come into it, where now it's not just I want the queen to ask me to come to her bedchamber tonight instead of you. It's like, I might try to kill you and or banish Mm -hmm. you and that kind of thing. And then, as we said, we're not sure who we're rooting for. So it's just sort of this great roller coaster where the first half is this build, 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 build to the midpoint. And then it's sort of like all sorts of loops going back and forth as we follow these power dynamics. And then, of course, I love that the ending, as we talked about, is just none of this was really worth it. Uh, (laughs) Power dynamics is something I never really thought about that much before. Obviously, you know them when you see them. And obviously, they're a huge part of like storytelling in this kind of story. But this was the first time where it was like the main thing I thought about when I was remembering the movie before watching it, you know, just the other night. And I just think it's really fun to go through and actually study why they work so well and why each one is not just the same one you saw five minutes ago. Again, it's it's building. It's 
faster. It's more severe. It's yeah, it just makes the mm-hmm. movie just a really fun, a really fun watch because of how the dynamics themselves have dynamics. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point. And, and kind of, I think you said earlier, Tricia, it's not just like a, a tug of war game, right? It's, right? So it's not just the same scene over and over again for two hours. There are, are all these changing things. And I think it's, as you're saying, Brent, is what makes this special. And I think it's very smart to go through and track all of this because as you're saying, it's such a great example of what it looks like when it's all working and why it can pay off so nicely. Mm-hmm. Alex, what's your lesson? We've touched on this a lot through this conversation, but how effective it can be to do a period piece or a costume drama where your goal is not to capture total historical or scientific accuracy, but it's to capture a feeling or to capture a thematic idea about the time. And Mm -hmm. watching a movie about some distant time, it's not going to be accurate. Like We don't know enough even like to make it 100% accurate even a recent time we could make a movie about yesterday and it wouldn't be accurate yeah that's what i'm saying (laughs) yeah Yeah. so ultimately what do we want from movies we want an emotional experience we want a thematic experience we want to be enthralled by drama and and so you know honestly i would prefer more favorites to more movies that are trying to be a hundred percent historically accurate but in their storytelling and their approach to the storytelling going the safe route going the kind of dry you know, here's the very flat version of the story to make sure we come off as accurate as possible. No, don't give it to me flat. Give it to me with all these bells and whistles that are enhancing the themes, enhancing yeah, the absurdity of the time or whatever emotion you want to get across from the time. Like that actually gives me the full spectrum experience of the period you're exploring, not just the kind of like textbook experience. Mm-hmm. I really love the line this movie manages to ride where it doesn't go full on like I remember Marie Antoinette I only saw it once when it came out the Sofia Coppola film but that one felt like it it crossed some boundaries that took me out of it as far as the anachronistic elements this one somehow is in this perfect lane where there's definitely clear anachronisms and there's lines being said that would not have been said at the time but I'm never taken out of it it all still feels like it flows from the same source. I don't know. So whatever he's achieved in this movie, I would love to see it attempted elsewhere in different time periods. Just whatever your theme is, whatever your feeling is, go for that as opposed to you being a slave to historical accuracy. Yeah, I fully agree. And I think that when we talk about historical accuracy, quote unquote, we often talk about it like it's science or something right, or math, right, right. which is just arbitrarily true. It's not like <laughs> it's it's not history is not like science or math. Right. Because I have a friend who is a history teacher. And one thing he always reminds his students of is history is stories. The people who tell those stories are the winners, the owners, and those who have power. Mm -hmm. And the people who do not win or own or have power, their stories are told for them or forgotten, which means that history by its nature is subjective. Mm -hmm. And so anytime you're telling a historical story, not just like in a political sense of like, you have to navigate the subjectiveness of history, but also it's really silly to marry yourself to historical accuracy as though it is science or math when it is definitely not. Right. Like there is the one objective thing. Right. So I think that that's just like this movie isn't necessarily trying to do something like Hamilton is, for example, right? With 
quote unquote historical accuracy or whatever. But it is operating in that space of well, who cares, right? Like, let's actually just tell a story since all of history is just stories anyway. Right. And potentially getting more powerfully at a truth through the exaggerated telling of that story. Mm -hmm. Precisely. Yeah, I feel like the whole conversation we could have (laughs) on this whole thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that's definitely a really important thing to keep in mind. Just, yeah, the notion of historical accuracy is kind of a, a falsehood. Yeah. Like you can, you know, Apollo 13, they made that prop look the way it actually did. That's like, cool. Cool. But like, that's not what we're talking about here. No. Right, yeah. right. My lesson is uh, hearing about the process that Yorgos used working with the actors, I thought was really interesting. Anytime there's like an off-the-wall director that decides to break all the rules, I'm usually like, well, that's uh-huh. more often than not, not a good idea. We have those rules for a reason. <laughs> right. Like <laughs> just saying you're not doing a thing doesn't mean that you are then doing a thing. But hearing more about what that process was like, and they had this three-week rehearsal period. Some of it was like learning, I like writing horse training and gun shooting dance choreography and (laughs) right mechanical things but a lot of it was theater style we're just gonna do these like warm-up exercises where we're saying the lines to each other but we're like tied in a pretzel so like all the actors are like (laughs) holding hands and have to untie themselves while saying their lines in order over and over again Uh, i remember those days (laughs) (laughs) there was something about that that struck me that I like, you know, hearing kind of how they all came away from that process. It wasn't, you know, they didn't talk about motivations or desires or like any of the normal things you talk about with actors, but they did feel like they totally had the material down and that they completely trusted each other and mm. were they had already been as embarrassed as could possibly be so that when they got to set, it was like, yeah, we're just here. We already have the the kind of like family dynamic that I think is one of the best things that can come from a good shoot is like over time, you're with these same people every day and you build this trust and your this camaraderie lets you go to places and experiment with things you can only do with people that you trust. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed like a cool way to use that rehearsal period, especially if you have like the best actors in the world, like mm-hmm. the, they already have all that yeah. stuff covered, like spend time building this kind of other relationship that then you can bring to set and, and hearing about his process of he just approaches each day, you know, they throw out whatever they were planning and he just watches them do it and like looks around and finds the angles. It, it seemed like a really an intelligent way to spend that time to marry with your process. And so I appreciate Anytime I see people, yeah, that have figured out unique solutions to their unique processes, I respect that. So it's pretty cool. I like it. Why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? I'm going to start because we kind of already mentioned it. So my journey was our producer, Vince, (laughs) mentioned a little (laughs) while ago that he loved the show The Great on Hulu, I think it is. Yes. Yes. I randomly, I one night started it and I was like, I'll give this a try. And I like kind of liked it and kind of got into it. And so I've I've been watching The Great. And so it was a very weird to then watch The Favorite this mm-hmm. week. Because I was like, something about this tone feels really similar. And mm-hmm. that's Nicholas Holt. I He's playing his the great character, <laughs> basically. Like he says hurrah several times in the mm-hmm. favorite. And in the great, he's constantly saying huzzah and throwing things and breaking. And so I immediately went to IMDB and was like, oh, it's the same writer. Okay. No. That that makes sense. So that was <laughs> I had that whole arc 
happening while also watching the favorite <laughs> so anyway so it, it is interesting like you're saying brian it's like a weird spiritual like cousin of the favorite yeah. and it has this weird you know not bothering with any kind of portrayal of historical accuracy like none of it really makes sense and just the the tone of it is kind of fun and whimsical and a language is offensive and just it's kind of all the things that the favorite does but in a tv show uh, and a bit like bigger and more toward the comedy side. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it felt like a little bit much episode after episode, but it was fun to see that kind of that taste applied to another historical period costume drama kind of right. thing. So hmm. that's what I've been watching. Nice. Yeah. Trisha, what have you been watching? I recently watched a movie called Ava. Probably not quite saying that right. It's a French film from 2017 directed by a directed by Leia Mycius. Missius, I look, I'm probably wrong about all of these pronunciations, <laughs> just as a heads up. And I tried to look them up. All of the people saying everyone's names are also French. And so I'm, so, I'm, I'm just sorry. But it's a movie about a young woman. The character is actually 13 years old. She's played by Noe Abita. Wrong on that, probably. <laughs> but she's a lovely French actress that I've seen in a couple other things, and I really, really like her. The central character of this film is 13, and she finds out that she's going blind just for like a rare, weird eye condition. And so it's kind of this female coming-of-age movie. She and her mother are spending the summer at this like trashy beach in the south of France. She falls in love with this like older boy who like rides a moped and steals stuff and... <laughs> But she's like slowly going blind and doesn't want to tell him. And it, it's got this Moonrise Kingdom me plot to it almost, where they hmm. kind of like run away together. And there's all this like imagery of them like kind of out in the wild where they're like covered in mud and they're just like, I don't know, it's really interesting French sort of, yeah, very uh like sort of raw take on a coming of age story. And so I really, really liked it. Um, like I said, it's from 2017. It's called Ava. Definitely check it out. How do you spell that? Just so we know. AVA. Also, there's a movie with that title apparently starring Jessica Chastain from a year or two ago mm -hmm. that I huh. guess was maybe not good, but so don't watch that. That one's probably Ava. You don't want to watch Ava. You want to watch Ava. Ava. The, there you go. This lovely French movie. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Great. Brian, what have you been watching? I have been developing a project on my own that's sort of inspired by Dazed and Confused and set in the 90s. And I realized, speaking of spiritual sequels, I had not seen Everybody Wants Some, which oh, was... Oh, really? Yeah. Richard Linklater's like follow-up to, mm -hmm. uh, to Dazed and Confused, more or less. Then my girlfriend said, well, have you seen Suburbia? Which is... Richard Linklater movie from the 90, mid 90s based on a play by Eric Bogosian. And I said, no. And she said, well, let's watch Suburbia. And then she said, have you seen Re Reality Bites? And I said, no. And she's like, who, what? what is your problem? Who are you? <laughs> what is your problem, Brian? How have you not? You hadn't seen Reality Bites. No, oh my gosh. I, was, I was like slightly too young in the 90s to then like not go back and watch some of this stuff. Wow. So which is not Linklater, but it's like super 90s, just like Suburbia. Very related. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason I'm lumping them all together is because I'm sort of fascinated by this Linklaterian no plot kind of thing, as you know, we talked about in Before Sunset, where it's like there is a plot. And while I'm watching the movie, I don't feel like I'm watching the movie. But when I'm done, I'm like, I definitely watched a movie. Like things happened <laughs> and characters changed and there were, you know, things. And I'm just sort of fascinated. And it's sometimes like 
you don't realize the inciting incident was the inciting incident until an hour later. And then you're like, oh, okay, that's what that meant, you know, which just feels like it goes against all the rules of having a strong dramatic question, knowing where we're going. Days are confused. Everyone's going to a party. The party never happens. It doesn't matter. You know, everybody wants some. They're talking about the start of the baseball season, which doesn't happen till like months after the end of this Mm -hmm. movie. So I'm just sort of fascinated by what makes it work. And it's a lot to do with the conflicts and objectives from scene to scene. So even if there isn't some big picture thing that you're sort of waiting to see what's going to happen an hour from now, you're just very focused on this individual scene and what these characters, these characters are sort of trying to one up each other. They both think they know how the world works and very sort of 90s angsty, like, I don't need your rules. And well, rules are how I got this money. Well, I don't need your money. You know, that kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) So there's this ton of like thematic pontificating different ideologies Mm -hmm. and stuff. And I don't know, like, would any of these movies work better if there was maybe some more moviness to them where there I felt like there was kind of I don't know I'm not going to argue that they're perfect as is but I am fascinated by what makes them work without some of that other stuff and a lot of it has to do with just like make sure each scene has like the conflict and the objectives you need and make sure everything is tied together thematically so you at the end you feel like you understand why all these scenes were together and who these characters were and what they were fighting for or why they were so aimless and what they needed to sort of figure out about their lives at the end. So yeah, I I would recommend all of them, but especially watching a lot of these kinds of things in a row was just really interesting to study the sort of the like plotless, but they actually have a plot that you didn't realize was there. Maybe, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Watching any kind of, you know, I'm going to watch a bunch of these in a row makes it a lot easier to spot those patterns and yeah. like right. extract those lessons. And I mean, I feel like that, you know, the the thematic things that they're all dealing with is like that's being expressed in the filmmaking. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of mm-hmm. what's special about them is that that same like wandery, pondery, like, I don't know, we don't need that. But it's yeah. like, I don't need to make a normal movie. And like, right. who are we? What are we going to do with our lives? <laughs> yeah, it's. <laughs> Before sunrise, anyway, I feel like is very was very much born yes, out of yes, that yes, yes. kind of a thing. Right. Awesome. Cool. And Alex, what have you been watching? I've been watching It's a Sin on HBO Max, which is Yay. a new series from uh, Russell T. Davies, who created the original Queer as Folk. And uh, it's really well done. Uh, the first episode is great. It's it's a beautiful introduction to this group of gay friends in the 80s in London, and it's right at the start of the AIDS crisis. Um, but the first episode takes place before they even know what's going on or and so it kind of begins in this exuberant way where it's like all these young people coming out you know and kind of finding their family finding their friends in london and i'm sure the rest of the show is going to get a lot more tragic but it's a great off to a great start and i really appreciate the way he handles these characters because it's the kind of gay story that's like a celebration and it's fun and it's not about people being victims or or just kind of like suffering it's really about just like the humanity of this group Mm -hmm. of friends and it's interesting because i was reading russell t davies when he created the original queer as folk actually tried to avoid the aids crisis because he was just so tired Mm -hmm. of gay stories being connected to that you know and he wanted to just create just like a different type of gay story but now it's it's, you know we kind of come full circle where we have a lot of gay stories and it's not just this one narrative Mm -hmm. so now he feels like he can go back to his actual experience in london in the 80s and tell that story about the people he knew and and all that. So it's, it's off to a great start. I can't wait to keep watching it. Um, it's a sin on HBO Max. Nice. 
Yeah, I've also been watching and enjoying it. And the first episode is a great, it's it's almost like the beginning of Shaun of the Dead, where it's like, I'm having fun and this is all fun, but like something's going on in the background that you're just right. sort of getting these hints mm. of. Like whispers. Yeah. Right. Neil Patrick Harris is in the first episode and he's sort of the thematic arc of what this sort of show is going to then become. And it's mm. sort of a nice way of setting setting this tone of like you were saying, Alex, it's it's fun, but also we're it's not just fun. There's more. There's more to come. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's great in the first episode too. Neil Patrick Harris. He's yeah. he's really wonderful. Nice. Awesome. Well, this has been our conversation about the favorite. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you as well to our producer Vince Major and our editor Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. As always, our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi. If you enjoy the podcast, tell a friend about it, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.